Welcome to Legends of Read. My name is Joanne Sukumaran. Every episode, I interview a top win player from the bassoon or over community. Find out more about them, about their musical knowledge and insights, and what makes them tick. Stay tuned. And good morning, everyone from Singapore. Today, I have the great honor and to interview Paul Hanson. He's one of the fascinating bassoonists right now, and he's not only a jazz bassoonist, he's also a jazz saxophonist, and he has played with a lot of many famous musicians like Bella Fleck and the Flagstones, and recorded with Ray Charles. Welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Could you briefly tell us about your musical background? How did you get started playing the bassoon? Well, first of all, I played clarinet in fourth grade uh, in band. And then in sixth grade, I added saxophone to that. And um, I went to a chamber music convention or chamber music workshop for uh, all ages. So at my age group, I heard a lot of beautiful music and uh, things like, uh, I don't know, wooden quintets, uh, string quartets, mixed ensembles. So I just fell in love with chamber music. And for some reason, although I was playing clarinet at this convention uh, or this this, uh, workshop, I just felt like the bassoon was kind of my calling. For some reason, it just kind of hit me in the head. I really wanted to play bassoon because I wanted to play an instrument that had both a low range and a high range. And then when I started playing it, I just got in love with how it kind of wraps around you. And it's just, you know, big sound to myself. And I mean, in terms of range, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the, uh, the activity on the instrument. So that's kind of how I, I got started into bassoon. It was uh, 10th grade. That's when I started playing it. Hands great. So you actually have a classical training, right? You studied at yes, San Francisco yes, Conservatory, right? Yes, and, and New England Conservatory for one year also. Oh, and, okay. Uh, so, yes. yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, at the same time I was doing that, I was making a living playing saxophone five nights a week uh, in local bands in the Bay Area. Back in the time, you could do that a little bit easier than you can do it now. Uh, it was very common for one band to play a lot. And I'm talking about from 9.30 in the evening to 1.30 in the morning, five nights a week, in addition to going to conservatory. So I kind of had an interesting uh, thing going on. I don't think it's so unusual these days, but back then it was considered, you know, you know, hmm, what's this guy doing playing, you know, in clubs and stuff like that? When he's young, he should be, you know, becoming, you know, just kind of only on classical music. But um, I, you know, I just had to make a living, so that's what I did, and I was learning music at the same time. Such a thing, you know, different music, mm-hmm. jazz, and funk, and pop, and stuff like that. You know, there's a guy I worked with named Eddie Money, who was a very big uh, rock singer that I actually recorded with and played a little bit around that time as I was getting out of school. So, yeah. Okay, so it sounds, sounded like it was a very uh, busy and productive time. Yeah, it was. It was very busy and productive, for sure, yeah. Was there a turning point uh, where you decided that you would specialize in jazz? And uh... I always liked improvising an instrument. And when I went to school, uh, I, my, my teacher, Steve Paulson, who's incredible bassoonist with San Francisco Symphony, uh, it was very try- hard to try to convince me. And I understand why to really you know, take the orchestral career seriously and go that route. And really, he was trying to take me under his wing and make me his protege. And I could understand it. Uh, but it's just something that I could see myself doing that and doing kind of what others had done before and uh, either call it being immature or very stubborn or both. But I just, you know, wanted to learn how to play the bassoon the right way 
and then apply it to you know the music I was listening to, which was fusion, which was jazz, which was uh, you know groove music that you know funk or whatever you want to call it, uh, soul jazz, whatever, and um, different things like that. And so I, after all my my, my training, um, I, I just couldn't go that route. I, I understood how important it was you know for him to try to get me to do that. I could understand that at the time, but it just wasn't something I, I could do. If I'd looked at the situation a little bit more uh, seriously, I might have found out there's many other kind of my situation. I'm thinking of a bassoon player named Mark Ortwine, who is a principal of Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, also a great saxophone player. So it's possible to do both. But I was told it really wasn't. And I'm not sure if it was Steve who told me that, um, but it was told it was a hard road to hoe. It was a hard road to go uh, to try to do all these things. But I'm not sure. You know, it could have been or couldn't have been, but that was just my particular uh, circumstance. So, um, yeah, the, that's how that, uh, so what it really hit for me was I think in the early 90s when I kind of made a decision that I played a lot of jazz saxophone gigs. I kind of put the bassoon away for a while, although I was always playing at home. I decided to try to bring it to, to, uh, to performances and start playing it in, the, in my jazz context. And so it was early 90s, that's when I really kind of started. And that's when I made the big kind of shift to say, take this really seriously. And I, I also played in a uh, contemporary chamber music ensemble that specialized in uh, working with MIDI instruments and electronic works called the Paul Drescher Ensemble. Uh, people like uh, John Adams would write for us, the composer John Adams. Um, I'd see uh, who else. Um, some other contemporary, you know, composers, Steve Mackey. Um, I don't think Phil Glass ever wrote anything for us, but we had similar type of work. Um, Lou, Don, Lou Harrison, you know, different people. So it was an interesting situation because the band leader or the ensemble leader, Paul Drescher, wanted people to play classical music, but also had a rhythmic feel like you'd find in a, in a pop music group. Because often, I don't know if it's still the case, but sometimes with classical musicians, they're not used with just not having any conductor. Their their rhythm is not so uh, you know grooving in in terms of the situation. But any for whatever reason, I was in that. So the '90s were very fruitful for me in that respect. I had uh, a lot of interesting places to play and work. And so yeah, sorry, this is a long answer, but that's that's the answer. Okay, it sounded like it, it came from a love of uh, chamber music and following your oh, passion. Oh, yeah? start. I, I, I yeah. to Well, the thing is. Oh, way back. Yeah, I mean, I love chamber music. I love the sound of the bassoon. I, I was always a little bit torn. I loved aspects of classical music for sure. Uh, but when you're an improviser, you love improvising with other people. I always improvised ever since my early years because we had a really good jazz program where I came up in high school in Berkeley, California. It was very hard for me to turn away from that. So that's kind of maybe who I was. Okay, so he's uh, enjoying the role of being your own chef, no? In, like, yes, it is. But like, like, like I said before, like, uh, there were the right ensembles for me to play in because I played in an ensemble that was kind of classical in nature, but took a lot of musical influences from groove-based musics. And um, I guess you would call it modified minimalist music, but it was also very melodic too. Mm -hmm. uh, so that being in that group was very good for me at the same time in the 90s which was like you know seven or eight years from being in, in college was helpful because you know it all helped everything you know I started you know kind of uh, getting known as a bassoon player and 
that's when I did my first IDRS convention. It was like 1995. So that's where I found out about the world of the IDRS and uh, all the Devil Reed, you know, people. So. I see. I see. So, um, what do you enjoy most about improvisation and playing jazz? Well, uh, it's a, a lot of uh, jazz is America's classical music, I would say, and um, it's the only true art form that we've come up with that's really, you know, definitely American for the American experience. And it's got a lot of history and a lot of uh, things it means for different people. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy expressing the feeling of a song uh, over the form of the song in different ways, which is, means different melodies, different rhythms, different harmonic concepts, um, finding things that are in the song to, to expound upon, you know, like a composer would. Yet I'm doing it in a, I'm doing it in real time. I'm not taking too long to think about it. I'm just kind of reacting. Uh, of course, you do kind of prepare yourself for these kinds of things. Like when I have concerts, I do look at the changes beforehand to make sure I know some of the, the I would say, musical devices on how to play something like that, you know. Uh, but it, it's a lot of it spontaneous, just kind of at the moment, uh, reacting and, and, and uh, you know, basically when you're improvising, you're hearing some music coming at you and you're kind of distilling it and putting something out there that, you know, shows your, you know, your appreciation for those, those patterns of the chords or whatever. It's a way to add something of yourself into this thing with, by creating melodies that fit. I see, I see. I hope that's not too, hope that's not too complicated, but I think it's, it's okay. Uh, yeah, because I'm, I'm quite keen to um, improvise. I mean, I'm just uh, starting out the, with little improvisations and I found that using the Indian ragas was the quite helpful uh, yes. entry point. So do you have um, more tips for me? Like how, how can I let go and, and be more creative in this sense? Well, I would say that use your ear, you know, try to get in a situation where you're playing with somebody else and you can try to follow the melodies. Like even if you say, if you don't have someone else to play with at the moment, another human being, you can always go listen to soloists you like, like things that you are fascinated by, maybe a jazz musician, maybe whatever, and try to use your ear to like ear training to write down what they're doing and being able to you know be engaged with your ear to what are they playing oh it's these notes that stuff and so you start training your ear and then at the same time you do that on your instrument so like you listen to something you try to play it back on your bassoon because once you start connecting your ear with your technique that really does a lot for you it really express it really uh, ties an interesting thing between you know your eyes seeing what the notes are hearing what the notes are and being able to play it becomes you know more seamless i think uh, most student players who have improvised say it helps them own the composition more like they really take charge more because they have to have to come up with something on their own but it usually starts with listening and playing back something like hearing a simple line and being able to play it back that's why in my uh tutorials everybody plays stuff back i mean i don't i play a line in the video and then there's time in the video for you to play that back very simple phrases yet this is what it's based on because it is an oral tradition, you know, jazz is an oral tradition. And uh, that's what I would give you in terms of the first tips as how to get better is just listen to what you like and try to identify it and play it on your instrument. So copying uh, existing phrase and- uh, Yes, exactly. And yeah. then once you do that, and there's always a situation where you don't play it exactly the same, where you try to take a phrase and then you take a little, say a little more about it, you know, 
it's just it's like sing song kind of stuff where you come up with something but you just like this combination of notes and then you just kind of go back and forth a few more times and put something else there what i often do is i give my students like three notes to work with in the beginning and you can only use three notes notes and then it's always happens that after about a minute they they have to play something different they start playing something on their own that seems to work and that's the native that's the uh focus of creativity that is the spark of creativity it's just you know in our nature to try to create more it's like giving a kid a bunch of sand in a sandbox you know you're going to do something with that you can't just let it sit there you know so uh it's just engaging it on an instrument that's definitely technically very difficult and in terms of compared to like a you know clarinet or saxophone or something like that it's not idiomatic for it but it still can be done and uh, once you start after a while, you're starting yourself humming a melody and fingering it in bassoon fingerings as you're humming it. That's a really amazing place to be because long, you know, for saxophone players, we do it all the time. We kind of hear things uh, and we're kind of fingering a melody with our fingers. But when we, and while we're thinking about it in our heads, but then actually do it with bassoon fingerings shows that you really connected something. So um, that's helpful. I mean, it's also enjoyable, I would think. Okay. And uh, using backing tracks is also good, right? Yeah. Using yeah. backing tracks, there's a great app okay. called iReal Pro that uh, I'll show it to you on my phone here. Okay. Uh, it's a little thing. It's, I can't find it. So this is a little thing called iReal Pro it's, uh, right here. This thing right here. So, ah, iReal Pro, right. Yeah. There's all different tunes. So you, when you press the tune, you get a bunch of changes right there. Ah, you have the, okay. Yeah, and, so, and it plays yeah. it. So, like, for example, this will play right here. Here you go. Ah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So it'll do that, you know. Okay. It'll uh, and so you play along with. You can change the key. You can change the tempo. You can do all kinds of things. The tools are incredible these days. Uh, so that's a good way to start getting that feeling of what it's like. And then, of course, you should do it with some other people um, too. And that's the next thing is finding the the right place to do it. You know, preferably a soft ensemble that you can you know fit in audibly with, like a like a pianist or a, like an acoustic guitar player and, a, and an upright bass player, something like that. You know, a guitarist and a bass player would be great to start, you know, because mainly about the volume you have to play at sometimes. So. Yeah, because we, we are quite soft instruments by nature. Yes, I know, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah but so. if you do, so, I mean, I, I don't have, I have some things that I've done that are on my SoundCloud places. I can't figure out my password for it because I can't figure out how to get back on there. But it's uh, Paul Bassoon or one or Paul Bassoon something SoundCloud acoustic things i've done i've done a bunch of acoustic stuff where i'm not amplified which i really like to do um and there's a bunch of things on there like uh, there's a few groups i've played with that i just played acoustically you know but uh so it is possible and i enjoy it and speaking of acoustic bassoon here's an excerpt of choro for bassoon and guitar written by tracy silverman <laughs> Thank you. 
lovely playing for. So uh, coming back to Amplified Playing. Do you mind sharing with us your setup yeah, for amplification? Oh, yeah. I don't have yeah. it in front of me. I don't know. Yeah. I, can, I can't. There's videos that show up. So yeah. basically, I'll go into a big story that's very important about this. For many years, since like 1982, I used a couple different things called a flat response audio pickup made by a guy named Arnie Lazarus, which was a pickup that the Emerson, Lake, and Palmer Touring Orchestra used to use to uh, have to microphone all their brass and woodwind instruments. So what it does, it, it, it goes into the vocal. I think you've seen everywhere on my pictures where it doesn't affect the vocal whatsoever. There's a little mount made by John Gable at Force Music. And uh, it goes flat in with the, with the side, inside of the vocal. So no air escapes or anything like that. And it picks up all the frequencies of the bassoon. Now this particular pickup was a three-dimensional uh, pressure transducer, very high quality, without getting too technical. There's nothing like it. And it, it uh, people like James Galway, um, Herbie Mann, uh, Eddie Harris, different people use this, and it was a fantastic pickup for many years. So I had an advantage for a long time because it was the best sounding pickup you could ever have. And mm -hmm. I played mine. I had about three of them in my lifetime. I played them all the way up to about 2014, 2012, and the sound has started to degrade. And it's, it's, it was, I stopped playing it because, number one, if you have something that's obsolete, it's very difficult to uh, go out there in the world and work with the fear that if something happened to your pickup, your sound would be gone. It wouldn't be impaired. So luckily, about the time I got back from uh, Cirque du Soleil in Japan, Trent Jacobs invented something called a little Jake. And mm -hmm. so what I use, I use a little Jake, which is, works really well. I use a little, uh, little pick up a, a little uh, preamp called a LR Bags Gig Pro, which is about 100 bucks. It fits on the music stand, and I get a decent EQ, and then I also put it through another EQ that's in my uh, effects pedal, which is a, my primary one is a TC Helicon Voice Live 2. Okay. And it, that's about all I need to do most gigs right there, because uh, it just gives a decent, good sound of the bassoon that works in a situation where you have to be loud with a band. Of course, it's very important to note that when I record in a, in a professional studio for people's albums, I record with the pickup, but I also record with real microphones because you really want to have that real bassoon sound on a record, you can do that. It's just very difficult to do it in a live, loud situation. If someone could figure that out for me, I'd love it because I'd love to get that sound. But I mean, you're, you're talking about trying to pick up sound on a bassoon all over the place when there's drums and you know it's really loud so it's difficult you have to isolate the sound with a pickup so basically it's like that I, it's uh, the it's the little jake to the lr bags preamp to uh, an equalizer i have in my pedal mm -hmm. and uh, that's pretty much it my my pedal uh, that pedal does a lot of different things it does mu just multiple different effects delays reverbs harmonization that i program and modulation stuff. And then I have another, <laughs> a lot of equipment, but I have another pedal that I use some of the time instead of that pedal. It's called a Line 6 Helix LT and has fantastic um, properties. It sounds a little different. So when I do uh, solo bassoon shows, like the one I just did in Portugal, the first set is usually one of those devices and then I switch the other device for the second set. This is a little different personality. 
but those are that's pretty much what I use. And uh, most of the time, I go through the PA system in the uh, theater or the place I'm playing. I use the monitors because really we're closest to vocalists. We're really closest to vocalists. So instead, I, although I've used amplifiers in the past, I have a really good one. Um, it's really what I'm looking for is like a what a singer would use if they were singing, you know, something like that. I don't want really a, a bass amp or a guitar amp or something like that. Yeah. Does this answer some of those questions, hopefully? Yeah, yeah, because I, I'm quite curious about the, getting the little jig. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really I heard good. you have to drill a hole into your Yes, vocal. you do. Oh. Yeah, like I said before, I yeah. want to get scared of that, but yeah. when you don't use it, there's a little nut that you put right in. Yeah. It's flat up there. I can show you in a second. Let me get my yeah. horn out. I'll show you. Okay. Hold on. I'm not going to play, but I'm just going to show you what it looks like so your viewers can see. So, this is a Lightsinger bassoon. I mean, Lightsinger. A Lightsinger uh, vocal. I play a Moose Moon bassoon. I'm a Moose Moon bassoon artist as well as a Legere Reed artist. So, ah, okay, yeah. Here's my nice vocal. This is my gold-plated uh, singer, yeah? Sterling okay. Light Singer. It's a really yeah. fantastic EML1. It's a great vocal. It's fantastic. Uh -huh. So, okay. you saw the hole there for a second. So, now people get weirded out, but see how nice, that's a really nicely done uh, mount ah, job. It's perfectly okay. set up in the little hole. So, what you do, okay. half the time I'm playing when I play acoustic, you just screw this thing in right there. Ah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, there's no air that escapes at all. All right. It's right, right up against the flesh. I, you know, some people go to the lens and think, well, maybe possibly inside it's, it's not all the way through. I really don't think so. It's pretty much this. But so the thing is, if you have a bad vocal, like a very cheap vocal that you put something like this on, it's going to sound like a bad vocal, right? You have a good vocal, it's going to sound like a good vocal. And you can say good music, regardless if you're amplified or not. But I mean, I've done this. I have two light singers that do this thing. My Heckle vocal had the same thing. And everybody's used it has not had a problem with it. You just have to don't lose this, you know. Mm -hmm. So. And, and who, who did it for you? Did you have. John to... Gable, G-O-E-B-E-L at Force Music. F-O-R-R-E-S-T Music. Okay. Uh, Force Music is known in the uh, W community. It's been there for 70 years. And my wife just purchased it. Uh, so my wife is technically the owner and she, uh, with another partner of Forest Music. So we do own that now, which is oh, pretty amazing. Yeah, okay. it's, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Okay. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, I only have two vocals, so I'm a bit <laughs> scared. I understand. I understand the fear, the fear of it. But what you do, you send it away. Or you can, if, you're, if you feel like you could work with a slightly less press a vocal uh you could use the um because sometimes the fox vocals are okay They're, they have they have a fox vocal that they can sell you that has the mount already made and they, they'll just send that to you when they send the system the main thing is to use um the lr bags uh preamp and get some type of equalizer after that because uh, the equalizer what you should do is put some more highs and a little take down the lows you have to use your ears it's not going to sound there's no way to make a pickup sound like an instrument at five feet away with all the richness. It's just not possible. But again, this is a sound that you would use in a situation where microphones can't work, like a really loud live. So you, what you want to do is get the best sound you can by working the 
equalization. And uh, that's will help you get a sound because often people get a pickup, they don't turn down the bass. So it's like, and it sounds like a <laughs> very bassy kind of thing, which is not a, it's not like that. It's not supposed to be like that. Uh, okay, so yeah, moving on, I, I read that you were touring with uh, Cirque Soleil for the Z. Yes, I was. I was touring yeah. and I also lived in Japan for four years. So and how did just, that happen? Well, I'll tell you. Invited? So yeah. now, the, the Japan show was a, what's called a residence show. So we didn't travel to Japan. We just lived there. Yeah. Lived in Shiba near Tokyo. And uh, yeah. the show was called Zed. Uh, and it was, it was at Tokyo Disney Resort. It was, it was right there. Um, well, I got an audition. I heard about uh, Search and Slay from a friend who was in a, in a show. He said, they're looking for people like you. So I auditioned. What I found out is they're looking for unique instrumentalists who can improvise, unique classical instrumentalists who play classical instrumental instrument, but maybe in, in an unusual way, you can improvise and play all styles. So it sounded good. So I auditioned in, in um, a long story. I'll make it short, but basically I auditioned right, in Los Angeles and uh, I started in a different show at first that they needed a saxophone player for, but they always had thought of me for a show that was beginning to be in production. It was in 2006. The show was going to open in 2008. They thought of me. And uh, so that's how they thought of me for the show called Zed. And then I got that. Uh, I had a combination of different things. I played mainly bassoon and I played with the classical style stuff, very lyrical, uh, kind of funky house kind of music kind of stuff, ethnic type of things. Um, kind of uh what would you call it i'm not sure jazzy kind of things i mean just and so it was interesting uh we were moving around on the stage so i had a wireless pack i had come up on risers you know the main thing is there's 380 shows a year as i was playing it so there's a lot of shows and, and um it's quite a fantastic experience living in uh, asia it was amazing i, I love you know tokyo is incredible what incredible sound and um so we did it till hurricane uh, no, the earthquake came, the big earthquake in 2011 came and changed a lot of the business uh, issues in Japan at the time because the country was going under a lot of rebuilding. So we kept on going, but we stopped at the end of 2011 because they decided to stop the show because it was just too much uh, damage to infrastructure. Not so much physical damage, but just people stopped wanting to come to the show for a while because they were in grieving, you know, they they're, didn't feel like celebrating. But then we decided to close, then we had incredible attendance. So it was time, though. It was, it was four years was long enough, I think, for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we come back to the United States. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It's, uh, I, I, I assume you had a costume and makeup. Or yeah, I had a costume and makeup. I had a great situation. It was amazing. And at the same time, I played for fun in Tokyo, doing some crazy wild gigs and some things that are on YouTube and stuff. I had a wonderful time playing music in uh tokyo outside but it's mainly for fun outside of my shop my job and uh yeah i wish that show could have kept on continuing it was a great situation a little bit of the situation that's going as golden handcuffs because it's a, a job you would never leave until you're forced to because and and as i saw a lot of you know because of social media you see what my all my old friends in the bay area or united states were doing it's like wow I hope I can do some of this other music sometime, do some other things besides the show. I do love the show, but I mean, when you have a great job, there's always a little bit of that issue of, well, I can't do something else, but I have to do this, you know, but it's, 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 it's always a toss up professionally. So. Yeah. 
Okay. I would I never traded though. It was a fantastic experience. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. There's always some pros and cons for yeah, yeah, yeah. This part. But I was very lucky. I mean, the, the the what we were able to see people feel that there was so much emotion in the audience because of our show. It's such amazing, beautiful show that it was oh yeah, it was definitely all worth it. I mean, I'm I just was wondering if ever going to live back in the United States, and we do. So it's all good now. So it's a while ago now. Did you have some reactions from the audience that they didn't expect that it was a bassoon that was playing in the show? Oh, I think in that, in, in, the, in Zed, in the Cirque du Soleil show, it was all part, it was, you see violinists, we had a violinist, we had, uh, you know, classical singers, we, <clears throat> so it was not too much of a surprise. I think the surprise was seeing you walk on stage and walk around and come up on a riser and, you know, dry, you know, like dry ice and whatever, all the effects and <clears throat> very flashy. I think there was something to that, but also sometimes when they saw often some people some to see me play with something or they didn't know that I was there or didn't know a bassoon was there. So looking at that instrument, they don't know what the name of the instrument is, then they start playing, they have no idea what's gonna happen, then they get like, Wow, okay. Yeah. And that's been fun all the time. I mean, that's when no one knows what's gonna come up and they have no idea what's gonna happen, then you start playing in the style of the music that you know you know how to play. And then they're always impressed by that because they would never expect that, you know. That that was always, that's always unexpected. It's not the only reason I play music or anything, but that was always kind of a fun element to see the people just, you know, kind of get their minds blown a little bit, you know, officials say, you know, they could say that. Yeah. So, so um, what do you wish more people knew about the bassoon? Do you think that people have some misconceptions about our instrument? Well, I, th I think the people's misconceptions are, well, I think there's a little bit of the clown of the orchestra thing. And I think that's going away more and more because there's better and better players. Uh, I think it's an instrument that you can do almost anything you want to do as long as you really want to do it uh, on. I think um, that, you know, a lot of things are possible. I, don't, I, I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I just think that the whole level of the bassoon is very high right now. I'm thinking of everybody, you know, classical players, improvisers I know, the people playing electric bassoon, whatever. I think it's very high. Uh, I just think that, you know, just think of it, and if they remember that it's not, a, it's not an oboe, it's a bassoon. And that's the main thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. We get confused so many times. I love your oboe playing. It's incredible. No, it's oh. they, they, they just can't remember which one it is. I think yeah. that's the biggest thing, is that people know what it is opposed to an oboe. But, you know, it's it's not that not that big a deal, you know. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's any conceptions of, of, I feel very lucky and fortunate to have everything happen to me the way I have, to the point of that I just hope I can do uh, always a good enough job to inspire people and uh, live up to expectations I have for myself and, you know, really put it there. You know, I, I used to have a, a it's, it's, really, it's really my instrument in terms of the, I like to play it because it just feels good. It's a good sound. And uh, uh, I think there's other instruments I could play that have played me play more notes faster, but it wouldn't be the same thing, I guess. Um, I, I, don't, I don't even say. I don't know. If I, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to say people's misconceptions. I think people's misconceptions could that it couldn't play, you know, jazz or couldn't play, you know, really, you know, grooving music. With, when I say grooving, like the African-American uh, vibe and music where, where there's a there's a pulse that grooves and it's not classical, you know. They play outside of that. 
At the same time, I understand why it is such a classical instrument because it is kind of archaic compared to some other instruments. It hasn't really developed beyond a certain level in terms of you know, the fingering systems or some of the things about it. What we like about the bassoon are the, what's called quirks, right? What are called, uh, you know, interesting things that make it so. I mean, like um, things that, you know, there's a personality of bassoons because every register sounds different. And uh, for some people, that would be a problem. I think that's what's fantastic with the bassoon because it does have that different sound and is not just a, any other instrument. It's very unique. It can be, you know, very dark and passionate and very stormy or very light. And you can play, you know, all kinds of different ways. I wish I could answer your question faster, but that's kind of what it comes about. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just, um, it's unique, right? It stands out from the Yeah, it's color. unique. It's, it's its own thing. It's And again, I guess the thing is that it has such a great range, you can do so many different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So could you tell us uh, who or what has been your main musical inspirations? What uh, inspires you Well, music? Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of things that inspire me. I think at the beginning, I loved groups like, uh, I listened to when I grew up, it was like the Beatles and Bach when I grew up. Great songwriting and great composition that developed, you know, I had affinity for that. Bach, a little bit more than Mozart, although I do appreciate Mozart very much and I love him too, but Bach was just because of the harmonic concepts of just the incredible pulse and, and development and just beauty in that music. Uh, it was incredible. Um, <clears throat> so I think uh, of all people, you know, I love John Coltrane, uh, Michael Brecker, uh, Charlie Parker, uh, you know, people like him, Dexter Gordon, all these great jazz saxophone players. Because when you play in a jazz horn in any kind of way, you study something to, similar to what you've done. And as a saxophone player, of course, I've listened to many of these players and I know kind of the, the, the idiom, you know. I've transferred a lot of that idiom to bassoon. So uh, I take the saxophone influence and play somewhat on bassoon, but as a bassoon player, I was always influ influenced like, by people like Jimi Hendrix, for example, because mm -hmm. the range of bassoon has some similarities to guitar in a way, and there's some kind of interesting elements that are similar. Things like, well, if you play a multiphonic bassoon with effects, it sounds very much like electric sound, like a, what Jimi Hendrix could have done or something like that. Uh, I like that. I like, uh, I mean, too many to mention, but there's a lot of people in, fusion music or like there's groups like Snarky Puppy is a group I, I love my, right now called Snarky Puppy. There's Snarky another group Puppy. called Snarky <laughs> Puppy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the group, there's a guy named Jacob Collier who's incredible right now. It's amazing. And a couple of different other groups, like a group called Nowhere, like A-N-O-W-E-R, fantastic group okay. that are really nice and modern influences. I'm talking influences like anything from like, um, like, uh, People like Square Pusher to to um, Sugar to you know rock bands to you know like math metal bands to hardcore jazz Herbie Hancock I mean it's just it's just a, a huge feel and then as a bassoon player um, I like people like uh, Klaus Tuneman I guess uh, mm -hmm. there's a guy uh, Doug Jensen was a guy I used to listen to all the time a great mm -hmm. bassoonist uh, there's a lot of fantastic one I really like today is she just changed her last name Sylvia. Uh, Dartia Long, but she's not. What's her name? Um, ah, Sophie Dartia Long. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I yeah. really admire those people. I wish often I could just stop doing everything and just focus on one aspect, like for you know, whole year, just do a bunch of classical study and you'd be able to play some of these pieces and really work in the idiom of that. I'd just love to do that if I had the time. I don't have the time, 
or I didn't stop and work on a, on a like electric pursuit album or like, like right now I, I, I saw something posted today on Facebook of something I did two years ago when I wrote an electric bassoon concerto. It was a very short little thing, but I wrote it for orchestra and myself. And uh, <clears throat> I'd love to do more stuff like that. I think that's what's going to come in the next 10 years is more things like that for me because um, I kind of want to bring what my experience on bassoon has been back to the orchestra in a way. Going to meet up because I think orchestra musicians now are so much more aware <clears throat> of everything because we're, every, we're all aware of everything because of the internet and just it's all out there, you know. There's, mm -hmm. and I, I don't think there's as many walls as there used to be. And so that's fascinating. So you're kind, kind of coming back to the classical tradition. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. It, would, it would be somewhat classical tradition in terms of yeah. the orchestration and stuff, yeah. but I would, I would intend it to, to have the time feel like a, yeah. like a really good funk group or a rock group or something like that, where it's rhythmical. You know, you really mm -hmm. feel the rhythm and the harmony is good. I mean, there's good combinations of everything uh, out there. I mean, it's just, I think the level is higher than it's ever been. And there's people who understand these types of concepts working in classical music these days. So I don't think it's so unusual as it used to be. If yeah. you could collaborate with any artist or composer, living or dead, who would it be? Ooh, my. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> well, it's crazy. Um, I guess a dead person, I'd be fascinated to meet Bach and just see him play some fugues and just see how the heck he did all that. Bach, Bach would be, Bach would be great. Uh, in terms of living persons now, um, man, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of people. I mean, Herbie Hancock would be one person, uh, I would be, love to meet and do something with, but I, I'm not sure I ever get that chance. I'm kind of meeting some people already. Billy Cobham was one of those people that I'm playing with. I'm in his band. It's amazing. Um, yeah, there's a bunch. There's a bunch of people now that I just would love to meet and work with. There's a lot of people I wouldn't mind taking lessons from or, or just picking up some things. Um, um, there's one person I'm going to be playing with coming up next year named Randy Brecker. I'm really fascinated by him because he's Michael Brecker's brother. Michael Brecker, the saxophone player, was one of my huge heroes. And Randy Brecker's, you know, maybe, I know he's older than me, but he's still practicing every day very hard. And he's just an amazing musician in so many different ways. And there's some things about the delivery game of music, like the how to deliver a good performance that I'd like to know from some per certain people, like their inspiration, what that keeps them going and how do they keep it level. And, you know, I, that's kind of what I'd be fascinated to hear. And then, of course, on musical levels, like someone like Jacob Collier, another person i'd love to meet yeah and, Jacob uh, Cooley, i yeah. almost i almost met him in person i was just i saw his concert and so many people talking to him i, I could have shook his hand but i didn't but his you know I, again like i'd love to just stop and you know i can't stop i got to keep working and doing what i do i try to learn as i go i try to take things apart but you have to do it while you're also making a living like i you know, my daughters my, my daughter my, my son and my wife i mean there's my pets you know there's things there's bills you have to pay you know you can't just go away and leave life, but you know, yeah. uh, I still have curiosity for sure, there's no doubt. Yeah, okay. So, um, looking back, I think we, we, I think looking back, we always understand things better than looking forward. So, yeah. what were some of the biggest lessons you have learned over your career? Oh, I can tell you for sure. Yeah. I know exactly yeah. what it is. Um, yeah. 
I, when I played with the Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones, to me, it was an amazing time because um, I never, somebody thought that would happen. I never thought that, I couldn't believe I took a bassoon and I was so stubborn with it. I practiced along the zone. Actually, did really want to be putting me in the band. I, of course, I always wanted that, but they really did put me on stage in their band, told me to play and stuff. Fantastic. But then the thing is, I thought that some reason that meant something more than it meant. So I thought that this is this thing called making it. Like, okay, I've made it. I've made it myself. Whatever's, whatever making it is, uh, you always, a musician, unless they're, you know, I don't know, you never really make it. You've you got to keep making it. You never... Mm -hmm. Okay, that's it. I don't have to do anything. You have mm -hmm. to keep going, you know, because I'll tell you, because I had a great couple of years with those guys. And then uh, it was not like I could go work with anybody else. Oh, we need a bassoon player who improvises in our group. Come over. It's when you're doing what I do, you have to have people enjoy what you do. And then they invite you to play with them. It's not like it's a position like, oh, you know, who's going to be the saxophone player on this group? Or we need a bassoon to play Beethoven's third symphony or something like that <clears throat> it's something that doesn't exist so much though so you have to create the demand and stuff so i thought i had kind of made it but i realized i had so much more to learn and so much more how to process you know the whole situation of whatever making it was you know uh so i went through a period where you know thinking maybe i got up higher than i really had um and i did do some interesting gigs up to that time but you know it was interesting to realize that you know what it was just the beginning it's not the end, you know, it's making it, it's just, hey, a great step. Then there's another one that comes after that. You got doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that's kind of the biggest, one of the biggest things I could say. It goes, I think, for anybody. Say you win an orchestra audition, you have an orchestra, you may think you've made it, well, you made it to one step. There may be more steps later, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. So that's lovely, is that what, staying grounded and... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, being humble, right? I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, you have to be. Yeah. I mean, there's so many incredible people out there these days. I think it's hard, you know, I'm an older, you know, over 56, I guess I am. And so um, <clears throat> I might seem young, but, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And it's always the people who are excited the most really impress me and are really impressed by excitement of people who have passion for what they do. And I, I hope to have passion. Sometimes I, I don't want to do everything like I may have used to. I want to focus on certain things. And so, you know, I want to feel the passion for the things I do and I'm lucky to have those situations where I do get to have that um I you know I never thought in a lot of ways that things would turn out the way they did where uh you know let me assume players would be curious about what I do or you know want to do certain things like that um and then you know it's, it's still you it's still you know I mean I think you know that it's just you know always at a different position all the time you just try to keep getting better and you know it doesn't help to be you know, when you show your ego or something like that, it can just always shows that there's something missing somehow that you have you have to rely on that you know kind of cheapness to feel good about yourself. Mm -hmm. And most great musicians I know, most great musicians are pretty humble people, and they are just they do it because they love it, and that's the love. That's why they want. So, mm -hmm. oh, thank you for sharing that. It's really very sure. very honest uh, sharing with you. No worries. Okay. Yeah. So we're coming to the last question. Um, I know that you were giving a master class in Portugal. Yes, uh, I was. Yeah. What are some of your upcoming projects for the upcoming months or the next year? Well, um, I'm trying to. Uh, I've got a bunch of concerts next week with a group called Ratatet, 
a local band that's really good, uh, great writing. Then I have a concert with uh, my friend Jeff Denson, some local things. And outside of that, I'm hoping to record uh, with my friend Ariana Cap, who plays in a group called Oon, O-O-N. Uh, we're trying to finish our second record, and we may be doing something with strings, of all things. Well, we may be working with a guy named Lee Oscar, who's a uh, harmonica person who is, used to play with a group called War. He's a very, very popular group in the 70s in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing that, then I'm going on a bunch of tours. I have my own group playing in Switzerland at the end of November, then I go on tour with Billy Cobham. And basically the biggest things I have is a lot of Billy Cobham coming up next year because it's his 75th birthday. Oh, wow. We're doing, yeah, we're doing a tour of Europe in March, a tour of the United States, I believe in June. July, we're doing something called the Art of the Rhythm Section. It's a musical retreat, a bunch of, it's a, basically a big educational event. And that's in July. And then uh, more traveling, I know for sure, in September to November, and maybe some mm -hmm. stuff later and before that. So it's a big year next year. And oh. so those are big projects. Outside of that, um, I just keep writing. I'm definitely going to keep up my, uh, <coughs> my lesson series. I'm not sure I didn't post this week because it's so busy, but either this week or next week, I'll throw the third lesson. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing I want to do is finish in terms of my own stuff is finish the Oon record with Ariana because it's a great way to hear bassoon. It's much more intimate kind of a group. It's just two of us, uh, six string bass and bassoon. So, um, O-O-N is the name of the group. You've probably seen some of our posts on Facebook, mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. I sent you information. Yeah. I love all the other groups I play with. It's just that's a very special group to me because it's a, uh, we just have a really great musical connection.